bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 23rd, 2020. I hope that you and your family are safe and well. For us at Novogratik, today is the 100th day since we implemented our firm-wide mandate to work from home. Now, as of today, we have reopened two offices out of more than 25, but physical occupancy at those offices is at about 10 to 15% of capacity. And while we may be working from home, we haven't missed a beat in our ability to continue to serve our clients. Now, the start of this week's podcast will not be a surprise. Yesterday, House Democrats released the details and the legislative language of a more than $1.5 trillion infrastructure package. This infrastructure package includes significant expansions and improvements for the low income housing tax credit, the new markets tax credit, the historic tax credit, and for renewable energy tax credits. The package also would create a new neighborhood revitalization tax credit. Now, after discussing the infrastructure package, I'll share with you two Opportunity Zones reports. One comes from the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council, and the other report is from the Urban Institute. Both reports include suggestions on how to increase the effectiveness of the Opportunity Zones incentive. Now, I'll also today briefly discuss a letter from nearly 180 House members seeking COVID-19 relief for renewable energy tax credit transactions. And I'll close with several tax credit updates from California. First, I'll review extended long-term tax credit deadlines. Second, I'll share details on how to apply for part of the $1 billion in federal disaster low-income housing tax credits that are available in California. And third, I'll quickly review the status of the California State Historic Tax Credit. If you're ready, let's get started. House Democrats yesterday released details in legislative language of an over $1.5 trillion infrastructure package. It's called the Moving Forward Act, H.R. 2. This bill includes a robust expansion of the low-income housing tax credit, a permanent extension and expansion of the new markets tax credit, an expansion of the historic tax credit, and a delay in the phase-down of the renewable energy tax credits. And the bill also creates a new neighborhood revitalization tax credit. Now, there is a lot to unpack, so let's start with the low-income housing tax credit provisions. The Moving Forward Act provides direct additional tax credits by two means. First, a permanent 4% local housing tax credit floor and an increase in the annual 9% credit per capita amount to $4.56 per capita and a small state minimum allocation of $5.2 million. These are phased in over two years. Now, the proposal would also lead to more private activity bond finance transactions in two ways. It includes an expansion in the private activity bond cap. It raises the state seal for $105 per capita to $135 per capita. And the bill would also lower the 50% finance by test for bond finance transactions to 25%. And this would be for buildings, place, and service in 2020 and 2021. Now, many currently unfeasible transactions would become feasible under the bill because the bill includes permanent basis boosts for developments serving extremely low-income tenants, tenants in rural areas, and in Native American areas. The bill also would extend to properties financed by tax and bonds the ability of states to approve a 30% basis boost. Now, regarding direct funding, the legislation does provide more than $100 billion for housing, including $70 billion for the Public Housing Capital Fund. 
Now, I noted earlier that the bill would create a neighborhood revitalization tax credit. Specifically, the bill includes the Neighborhood Homes Investment Act. The Neighborhood Homes Investment Act is a House bill that would create a single-family tax credit similar to the low-income housing tax credit that would help finance the rehabilitation of deteriorated homes in distressed neighborhoods. Now, the bill was introduced in the House last year by Democratic Representative Brian Higgins of New York, along with Republican Representative Mike Kelly of Pennsylvania and several of their colleagues. Also, a Senate companion bill is expected to be introduced this week by Republican Senators Rob Portman of Ohio, Todd Young of Indiana, Tim Scott of South Carolina, and Democratic Senators Ben Cardin, Maryland, Sherrod Brown of Ohio, and Chris Coons of Delaware. As you can see, housing will be a major point of emphasis for the House Infrastructure Bill. But there are many other provisions that relate to the tax incentives we discuss here. The Moving Forward Act would make permanent and expand the new markets tax credit. The credit would permanently be extended at $5 billion a year with an annual adjustment for inflation. Furthermore, the bill provides an extra $500 million that would be added to this year's 2019 allocation round, making it a total of $4 billion. And the bill would add $2 billion extra for the 2020 round for a total of $7 billion and another $1 billion extra for 2021 for a total of $6 billion. The bill would also allow the new markets tax credit to be claimed against the alternative minimum tax, and it instructs Treasury to ensure that tribal areas receive proportional allocation, similar to the policy for non-metro areas. Now, turning to the historic tax credit, the bill would increase the historic tax credit percentage from its current 20% to 30%. This would be through the year 2024. The historic tax credit would then begin a phase down back to 20%, reaching 20% again in 2027. However, certain small projects would permanently qualify for a 30% historic tax credit. Furthermore, the bill would also reduce the substantial rehabilitation threshold requirement from 100% to 50% of adjusted basis, and it would repeal the HTC basis reduction, which would put it on parity with the low-income housing tax credit, as well as amend rules to make it easier to use historic tax credits for tax-exempt entities and public schools. The bill does also contain many clean energy provisions. One is a delay of the phase-down of the investment tax credit until 2026. Another clean energy provision is to extend many uses of the production tax credit for facilities that begin construction by the end of 2025. Now, the House bill will be debated beginning next week, June 30th or July 1st. I do expect the full House to pass the overall bill next week as well. Now, it's not clear whether the Senate will act on the legislation before the election, but the existing Surface Transportation Authorization does expire on September 30th, like the end of the 2020 fiscal year. Congress will need to act in some fashion before that expiration. It's possible that parts of the Moving Forward Act could make it into the next round of COVID-19 relief legislation as well. We'll obviously be keeping an eye on this legislation. Now, I shared the text of the Moving Forward Act, the section-by-section summary, and a fact sheet in the show notes, and I'll tweet out a link as well. Plus, Novogratz Peter Lawrence is writing a blog post with more details on the legislation, and I will share a link to that as soon as it's available. Plus, we're going to discuss this bill in more detail during this week's Affordable Housing Friday Forum. As you may know, Novogratz 2020 Affordable Housing Friday Forums are a three-part virtual event to address the nation's most pressing low-income housing tax credit topics amidst the current COVID-19 pandemic environment. We have a Wash & Wire session this Friday that will review the bill in more detail. I'll tweet out a link to register 
and include that information in today's show notes. Now, let's turn to Opportunity Zones. The White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council last week published a report to the president on Opportunity Zones best practices for various stakeholder groups. Now, the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council was formed to help state and local tribal governments leverage Opportunity Zones for economic development. The White House Council's report from last week provides Opportunity Zones best practices and case studies for a variety of stakeholder groups, from local and state governments to charitable organizations and to qualified opportunity funds. Best practices for local governments include using existing community infrastructure partnerships with revitalization strategies. An example of this, the city of Erie, Pennsylvania, which formed local partnerships to raise significant gap financing to support Opportunity Zones investments. At the state level, the report notes that states can pass legislation to help make Opportunity Zones investments feasible. For instance, Maryland provides financial assistance for Opportunity Zones projects and a state income tax credit for certain qualified workforce housing in Opportunity Zones. Now, many states are also helping drive Opportunity Zones investments by providing matchmaking services between investors and Opportunity Zones businesses. Now, one case study as to what philanthropic groups can accomplish for the Opportunity Zones incentive comes from the Kresig Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation. They combined to develop the Opportunity Zones Reporting Framework Tool. The framework gives stakeholders a set of universal measures to assess the social impact outcomes of their Opportunity Zones investments. For qualified opportunity funds, the report illustrates how opportunity funds can help build affordable housing, expand educational opportunities, and develop infrastructure. One timely example shows how opportunity fund capital helped an Ohio medical software startup deploy a medical diagnostic and patient care tool in response to COVID-19. In sum, the report demonstrates how public and private partnerships can drive effective Opportunity Zones investments. In addition to examining Opportunity Zone strategies from those various perspectives, the report analyzes ways Opportunity Zones capital can pair with other federal resources. For example, a public housing property in Holyoke, Massachusetts, converted from public housing assistance through Section 8 into HUD's Rental Assistance Demonstration Program. The RAD conversion involved low-income housing tax credits as well as Opportunity Zones investment that helped bridge a significant funding gap. Now, the final section of this report examines how Opportunity Zones investment data can help investors, communities, and policymakers make informed decisions. To that end, the President's Advisory Council on Economic Policy plans to release a report quantifying the effects of investments in Opportunity Zones. There's no date specified for the release of this report, but the Council of Economic Advisors said that the report would be produced this summer, summer of 2020. The Council's planned report will track how much capital qualified opportunity funds have raised. That'll be a key number to be watching for. The report also includes how much this, those opportunity funds have invested in particular Opportunity Zones businesses. And this report will analyze social and economic indicators to determine which investments have produced the greatest positive changes for residents in distressed communities. Now, you can read more about the White House Council's best practices report on the Novogratic website. I'll include a link to the report in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. I mentioned that there were two Opportunity Zones reports. The Urban Institute also recently published a report of its own on Opportunity Zones. In the report, the Urban Institute offers four broad principles to help policymakers improve the Opportunity Zones incentive. The first principle is to provide better support for investment in small businesses. 
The Urban Institute observed that a vast majority of Opportunity Zone's capital appears to flow into real estate and not operating businesses. And they do note the Novogratz data on fundraising. Now, the report recommends incentivizing investments in Opportunity Funds that can provide subordinated debt investment or hybrid debt and equity products to small businesses, noting that policymakers could also grant greater flexibility around deployment rules to help mission-driven funds that specialize in small business investing. Now, the Urban Institute's second suggestion is to create policies that provide the largest incentive based on project impact instead of profitability. And the report's third recommendation is to broaden the Opportunity Zone's investor base by providing a refundable tax credit rather than a capital gains exclusion. The Urban Institute says that the current incentive limits investors to capital gains holders and freezes out most stakeholders in low-income communities. Moving to a refundable tax credit, Urban Institute argues, could open the door for foundation endowments and pension funds to be used as Opportunity Zones resources. Now, the report's fourth and final principle for Opportunity Zones policymakers is to support mission-driven funds that are accountable to the community. The Urban Institute specifically mentions community development financial institutions, or CDFIs. CDFIs do have a long record of investing in local communities and taking on higher risks than conventional investors. As you can see, the Urban Institute report does include a lot of legislative recommendations and not as many related to the administration of the incentive. Now, you can, can find a link to the report in today's show notes, as well as I'll tweet it out. I do want to note, Novogratz is also offering an upcoming Opportunity Zones virtual conference. And we also have two pre-conference virtual workshops. Now, the first workshop is OZ 101, the basics. That will be next Tuesday, June 30th. The second workshop is OZ 201, overcoming obstacles. That's in two weeks on Tuesday, July 7th. And then in three weeks, we have the main event, the Opportunity Zones Virtual Conference on Wednesday, July 15th. And we have a keynote welcome from none other than Senator Tim Scott. And we have a fireside chat with Treasury's Dan Kowalski. And we do also have a closing session with representatives from the IRS. This is definitely a conference you won't want to miss. Please take a moment today to register for the conference, as well as the two workshops. Registration links are in today's show notes and I'll tweet them out as well. Now, let's get back to renewable energy tax credits briefly. Now, a few weeks ago, I did discuss two IRS deadline extensions for both the investment tax credit and the production tax credit. Specifically, IRS 2020-41, notice 2020-41, extended the four-year continuity safe harbor. The notice also provided a new safe harbor for applying the three-and-a-half-month rule. That's the rule that you use to determine when certain costs can be considered incurred in order to satisfy the 5% beginning of construction safe harbor. Well, now, last week, on Tuesday to be exact, 179 members of the House Representatives sent a letter requesting COVID-19-related relief for clean energy industry participants. This letter was addressed to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer. Now, the letter did highlight the loss of nearly 600,000 jobs in the clean energy industry through April. The letter said that clean energy jobs are disappearing faster than the national average for all jobs during the pandemic. House members said that they expected more clean energy jobs to be lost by the end of June as the effects of the pandemic continue to impact jobs across the nation. Even as some communities begin to reopen, unemployment claims do continue to rise. Many clean energy projects have been delayed due to social distancing requirements, due to permitting delays or supply chain delays. The House members noted that many of those projects are facing upcoming tax credit deadlines and potential tax credit reductions. In the letter, 
They suggest that the industry is being forced to restrict investment as opposed to quickly rehiring laid-off workers. So, in order to address these problems, the letter requests that House leaders enact a series of policies to provide relief and certainty for tax equity financing and to ensure the maximum benefits. To that end, these House members suggested the following. One, delay the phase-down of existing renewable energy tax incentives. Two, allow renewable energy tax credits to be received as direct payments. Now, we saw the Section 1603 Payment in lieu of Tax Credits Program enacted in 2009 as a response to the Great Recession. Congress created Section 1603 to increase investment in clean energy during a time when a grant was more useful than a tax credit to investors who may have had reduced tax liabilities. A provision of the Green Act, that's the Comprehensive Clean Energy Tax Legislation released by the House Ways and Means Committee last November, would authorize a direct pay option similar to the Section 1603 exchange grants. The Moving Forward Act does include this provision. These proposed policies would allow renewable energy developers time to get construction timelines back on track. An adjusted timeline would help developers qualify their projects for tax credits before they phase down or ultimately expire. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Moving Forward Act contains extensions of the Rules of Energy Tax Credits as well as other key provisions of the Green Act. All that said, if you're facing difficulties meeting requirements or deadlines with renewable energy development, I encourage you to contact my partner, Tony Grapponi, for assistance. And if you're interested in the state of the renewable energy industry as a whole, or even parts of it, please register for our Novogratic webinar on this topic, being held this Thursday, June 25th. The webinar will discuss the state of the rural energy tax credit equity market, various tax credit deadline extensions, and the rural energy legislative agendas. Again, that webinar, our renewable energy webinar, is this Thursday, June 25th. I'll include a link to the register for the webinar in today's show notes, and I'll tweet it out as well. And I do invite you to join the Novograd Renewable Energy Working Group. This working group is currently drafting a letter to Congress requesting COVID-19 relief for renewable energy tax credit participants. I'll share details of the letter in a future podcast as soon as the letter is finalized. In the meantime, I encourage you to join the working group for a chance to contribute to the letter in future letters that can help shape renewable energy tax credit legislation and administrative policy. There's a link to the working group's webpage in today's show notes. Next, I have several important tax credit updates from California. First, the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee last week granted a six-month extension of place and service deadlines for localizing tax credit properties. These extensions are due to complications from the COVID-19 pandemic. The extensions apply to properties that received carrier allocations in 2018 and 2019. The authority to delay the deadlines comes from Treasury Notice 2014-49, which grants that authority due to the declaration of a major disaster area. And obviously, uh, every state was declared a major disaster area due to COVID-19. Now, TCAC also recently announced some details as to how the committee will allocate $1 billion in federal disaster low-income tax credits. California received those 9% tax credits as relief after t- catastrophic wildfires in 2017 and 2018. These additional credits were allocated to the state as part of the federal budget legislation that was signed by President Trump at the end of 2019. California Allocation Plan grants a minimum of $25 million in credits to each of the 13 counties affected by the wildfires. The rest of the credits 
will be apportioned based on the county's percentage of the statewide loss of homes. Now, Butte County, where 59% of the homes that were lost were located, will get more than $400 million in credits. I should say Butte County is eligible for that much in credits. The state said that there'll be up to three application rounds for the additional credits. The first round has a deadline of July 1st, just over a week from now. The second deadline is early March 2021. Any remaining credits will be awarded in a round that has a deadline of early July 2021. Now, if, for instance, Butte County falls short of applying for and receiving $400 million in credits, then the remaining credits will be apportioned to other disaster areas in that third round. Now, any property receiving the disaster credits is eligible for the 130% basis boost, regardless as to whether or not it's in a difficult development area or qualified census tracts. Now, properties that get the federal disaster credits will not be eligible for state credits. Now, I do have an important distinction here. The disaster allocation round is a separate competition with separate, with different selection criteria from the regular 9% competition. However, projects that are not awarded disaster credits are eligible to compete in the current regular 9% round. That is assuming they satisfy the requirements of the regular 9% competition. The state did say that applicants should use the same form for the disaster credits as well as, as used for regular credits. Now, with such little time until the first round of applications are due, I encourage you to check with my partners, Jim Kroger or Thomas Stagg, to discuss your potential developments for this round or a future round. And my third update from California deals with the state historic tax credit. The state historic tax credit was enacted this past October, making California one of the more than 35 states with an historic tax incentive. However, no funding information for the program is available yet. It actually hasn't been funded by the state budget yet. And no application for the credit regulations are available yet. Now, Novogratik did hear from the State Historic Preservation Office last week that the office is discussing the beginning of the rulemaking process. I'll share updates on the California Historic Tax Credit as they become available. I don't expect them to be in the state budget. So it does look like we'll have to wait at least another year before we actually have on the ground an historic tax credit available in California. In the meantime, I encourage you to contact Novogratz's Historic Tax Credit team to learn more about historic preservation incentives available in your state. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's report. As a reminder, the deadline to get a Paycheck Protection Program loan application approved is one week from today, June 30th. Once again, that's a deadline to get the application approved, which means if you're interested in getting a PPP loan, you need to apply immediately. Novogratz's Megan Murphy can assist you with the application and documenting your need for loan forgiveness. I'll include her contact information in today's show notes. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.